We do have the, the privilege of gathering together around the, the Lord's table, that, that powerful symbol of the bread and the cup, and, and uh, we're going to do that together in just a, a few moments, but uh, as we get ready for that, I will encourage you to find an Old Testament passage uh, in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, and as you're finding that, uh, you know, I was just thinking this week, uh, I, just, I am so grateful. Paul, Paul wrote to the, the Philippians, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And as I think about, I said, you know, Lord, I get to come uh, gather around the table with this church family. And I'm just so grateful to be able to do that for you. I've just been thinking about just this summer and all the things that are, that are unfolding and taking place. And it's just, it's just been awesome to just see, to see the body of Christ ministering uh, one to another, whether that's in a group setting or a formal relationship or a Steve ministry, to see just kind of the diversity of, of, of interest and passions that God is using, to see uh, all different ages, uh, uh, mothers of preschoolers or popsicles in the park to senior adults and everything in between to see God using uh, sports and uh, all sorts of other uh, venues uh, to, to further uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether that's through victory sports or some of the mission trips you've seen. Uh, we've got things going on uh, in South Carolina, uh, across the country, across the world. And you help make that happen in your prayers, in your giving, in your going. And, and it just, I just I marvel, and I'm so grateful for the spirit of the people in this place. And so I just want to take just a moment of personal privilege and just say, man, I, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I get to pick up the bread and the cup with this incredible body of believers. And so thank you for letting me be a part of it. You know, as we approach the, the table, we do so looking back. We look back at the cross chronologically in history. But what we don't register a lot of times is that for the bulk of human history, people didn't look back at the cross. At best, they looked forward to what was to come. And God all along the way, foreshadowed. He gave kind of pictures prefiguring what was getting ready to happen in the cross of Jesus Christ. You find it in the very, very beginning. If you, you go to the very first chapters in the book of Genesis, and there you find Adam and Eve stepping out of God's love and God's uh, way and God's will and stepping into rebellion and sin. And God intervenes, but even in that intervention, there is an act of grace and there's a prefiguring of what's to come as an innocent animal is slain to give covering, physical covering for the nakedness of Adam and Eve. And there, even in the first chapters of Genesis, is this prefiguring, this pointing forward to what God has already planned and prepared to do. You continue to flip through the, the pages of Scripture and you, you 
bump into Abraham. And Abraham, who, who's been given this, this promise, he's going to be the, the, the father of this nation through whom the Messiah is going to come. And, and in this in dramatic moment, he, he finally has this child that he's been waiting for for decades, this child of promise, Isaac. And, and God asks him to lay him on the altar. In that dramatic moment there in Genesis 22, you find that, that God prefigures, he points ahead to what's going to happen is Isaac is taken off the altar and a substitute, a ram, is, appears in the thicket and the ram is slain instead of the son, pointing to what is to come. And then certainly you continue on and you go to Exodus and you find there that God is, is reaching to bring his people out of captivity in Egypt. And he does so in a, in a dramatic event that we look back on and call Passover. And to prepare for that, there was the slaying of the Passover lamb. And there was taking of the blood and there was putting it on the, the door frame. And that blood gave provision. It provided at least two things. One, it, it provided a protection from death, this escape from death, that, that death that was going to come through and, and visit the firstborn of Egypt would not strike those homes that were covered by the blood. But it also then became the, the source of their freedom from slavery. And it pointed forward to the, to the ultimate Passover lamb that was going to come. Jesus Christ who was going to come and by his shed blood, he was going to, to give us the victory over death. That death would not have the final word. It would not have the final victory because of what Christ had done. He also provides us freedom from the slavery of sin that we no longer have to live in slave to sin, but we've been set free by the power of the crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And you continue through the pages of the Old Testament, and you come to the prophets, and you come to Isaiah, and you come to chapter 53. And in those moments, as you read those words, it perhaps hits you all over again that these were penned through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit some 700 years before Jesus walked physically the face of the earth. The prophet Isaiah gives us this incredible picture of the provision that God had already purposed, was already preparing, had already made for us. And so I thought even though we look from this perspective of looking back and remembering and reflecting and rejoicing, that it may serve us well to also invite in anew and afresh the perspective of one who was looking forward, looking forward to what was yet to come, and to see even how those that looked back picked up on that. So what I want to do very simply to prepare us for the bread and the cup this morning is to look at Isaiah 53, and it's so rich, we could spend so much time there, but I want us to just pick out five facts that Isaiah gave us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about the Messiah that from his perspective was still yet to come. And the first fact is simply this, the one who is Messiah 
would be fully without personal guilt. He would be fully without personal guilt. Look at verse 9 there. We'll uh, jump back and forth in some verses in this chapter. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Sounds familiar from the Gospels, does it not? Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Uh, this one who was, was killed, this one who, who was slain even alongside those, the wrongdoers whose body was laid in a rich man's tomb, this is the one who had no personal guilt. He was without sin. And so Peter, looking back on the cross, Peter who walked with Jesus all those years would write, he, speaking of Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was there deceit, as he picks up the words of Isaiah, Neither was there deceit found in his mouth. But one of the things that Isaiah prefigured, foreshadowed, Peter celebrated and remembered looking back, was that the one who was Messiah had no personal guilt. There was no sin in his own life. There was no time when he was outside of the love and the will of the Heavenly Father. And that was important. Because it was that which qualified him to fulfill the role of Messiah. He was without personal guilt. But not only was he without personal guilt, but Isaiah goes on to tell us that he would suffer. This Messiah would suffer as a direct result of the sin of his people. That his suffering was directly connected to the sin of the people. Verse 5, but he was pierced, and as I just read these words, just picture, picture the cross in your mind. Picture those events. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, our sin, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore... I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he pointed out, poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of the many and makes intercession for transgressors. Everything that he did was a direct result of the sin of you and I, our iniquities, our rebellion our disobedience, our pushing God to the periphery of our life. Isaiah saw it looking forward. Again, Peter sees it looking back. He himself, as he wrote about Jesus, bore our sins in his body, our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live 
to righteousness. And then he keeps picking up Isaiah's words. By his wounds, you have been healed. By his wounds, you've been healed. Our sins, our iniquities, our transgressions. He who was without personal guilt would suffer as a direct result of the sin of his people. Thirdly, Isaiah prefigured for us that he would suffer as a substitute, as one who would be in place of another. He would be a substitute for his people. We just, we just read verses uh, uh, 5 and 6. Let me add verse 4 to that. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And again, Peter picks up on some of these same images as he, he thinks about the one who is our substitute. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Theologians talk about the, the vicarious suffering, the, the vicarious suffering of Jesus Christ. Vicarious means that which was performed or suffered by one person as a substitute for another, to the benefit and the advantage of another. That's what Jesus Christ did for us, that, that he suffered as our substitute. He suffered vicariously, that what he did came for our benefit, for our advantage. Whenever I come across Isaiah 53, 6, that, that powerful passage, I, I remember some evangelism training that had years ago through uh, continuing witness training. Perhaps some of you uh, had exposure to that years ago. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. My story. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the, the illustration was was that if you thought about kind of my Bible here is just representing all of my sin, all of my rebellion, all of my iniquity that stands between me and a holy, righteous, just God. And you have the substitute, the one who had no personal guilt. There's nothing between the Father and the Son. And the Scripture says that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That He bore my sin. He bore the punishment that I deserved as my substitute for my benefit, for my advantage, so that I could be set free. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. But He sent a substitute and laid all of our iniquity upon him. Fourth fact of this Messiah. It was God's own hand that ultimately inflicted 
the Messiah's suffering. It was God's own hand. Yes, it was, it was the, the conspiracy of the, the Jewish leaders. It was the, the hands of the, the Roman soldiers commanded by Pilate. But all of that through God's hand orchestrating. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Yes, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Isaiah, looking forward, understood there would be this one who would come that would have absolutely no personal guilt. And yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, to lay the iniquity of all upon him. And again, we, we step to the other side of the cross and, and we find that, that, that proclamation and those prayers of the New Testament church as they cried out in recognition of, of the fact that it was God's hand behind it all as they cry out in prayer for truly in this city. They were, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, now watch, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The cross of Jesus Christ wasn't a tragic accident. It wasn't just an example of another idealist crushed under the weight of a, of a political machine. No, it was the purpose, predetermined plan of God to send a substitute who would be fully without personal guilt, who would stand in and take the wrath and the punishment, the just punishment of a righteous, holy God against sin, and he would take it upon himself. And it was all according to the Father's predetermined plan. God's own hand inflicted the Messiah's suffering. But there's a fifth fact that I want you to see from this one tremendous chapter in the prophecy of Isaiah. And that is that that Messiah's death would result ultimately in tremendous rewards for each of us. Tremendous rewards for each of us. Verse 5, we've, we've read it, but let's, let's revisit it again. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, reward. And with his wounds, we are healed. Verse 11 out of that anguish, uh, out of the, he, he was satisfied by his knowledge of the righteous of my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. We can be counted as righteous, right standing before God, and he shall bear their iniquities. Uh, that, that God intervened in such a way, and we are the beneficiaries of that. We are the ones who are rewarded as a result of that. This vicarious death of Jesus Christ resulted in benefit, in blessing to you and to I. Why? That's why we gather around the table. That's why 
he tells us to remember. That's why we reflect and rejoice when we come to this moment because of all that is ours because of Christ Jesus. And again, Isaiah is looking forward. Peter and Paul and others are looking back. Paul said, for our sake, for our sake, including you and I, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that the result, the reward in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That we might not just be forgiven, but have a right standing with God. To the Colossians, Paul would say, you, you once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That was our story apart from the intervention of Jesus Christ. But he has now reconciled in his body, his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. All of that comes because of what Jesus Christ did. We talk theologically, if you will, about a twofold exchange. And both sides of that exchange are so important, and sometimes one gets emphasized perhaps to the, the, the detriment of the other. The first side of that exchange is a charging. A charging of a believer's sin to Christ that results in forgiveness. That, that I, I have earned a debt. I have earned a deficit. If you could think of it, it's is in terms of like of billions and billions of dollars, and I, I am, I'm in red ink, and there is no way in multiple lifetimes I could ever pay it off. But he paid what he didn't owe so that I could be forgiven so that my debt could be canceled, eliminated, paid in full. But that's just the first half of the exchange. And in and of itself, that doesn't make us fully right with God. You see, it's not only the charging of a believer's sin to Christ, but it's also the crediting of Christ's righteousness to the believer that results in justification, this righteousness, this right standing before God. You see, it's, it's not just to get to a zero balance that's enough, but what's required is, is, is perfect love and perfect obedience. And if we had billions and billions and billions in debt, we, all, we also are supposed to have billions and billions and billions in assets. <laughs> and just like we had no capacity to, to, to get rid of the dead, we don't have capacity to, on ourselves to get, get all the righteousness. But Jesus Christ, one with no personal guilt, the one who walked in absolute righteousness before a holy father, took his righteousness and credited it to our account. I mean, the money doesn't do justice to us, but it's like one day you recognized you were billions and billions of dollars in the red, so deeply buried nobody could find your zip code. And then the next day you woke up, and not only was all the red ink gone, 
you had billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars to your account. All of my sin charged to Jesus Christ, paid it all. All of his righteousness credited to my account so that I could be right, justified, standing before a holy God. So how do you respond to a love like that? I mean, what do you do in the face of that kind of love, that kind of sacrifice, that kind of giving? Well, I think the New Testament guides us into at least two key responses. They're captured in these two scriptures. From the beginning, Jesus proclaimed a gospel that included a response of repentance and belief. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from a self-focused, a self-directed, a self-righteous life, and turn and place your faith and trust in the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ, what he did to cancel your debt, what he has done to provide for your righteousness. Entrust him with your past, your present, and your future. Repent and believe. It is the foundational response to the love of God manifested in the cross of Jesus Christ, remembered in the broken body and the shed blood that the bread and the cup represent today. Repent and believe. And so I'm going to pause right here and just say to anyone in the room, right here, right now, if you're in this moment, and and perhaps even in this moment you're sensing a a tugging at your heart, you're sensing, sensing God kind of disturbing you a little bit in the Holy Spirit, and then that's a good thing. And what God is seeking to stir in you is a call to not just to to be religious and not just to, 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 to get more moral or to turn over a new leaf, but to repent and to believe. And so today, I just want to want to urge you, as you sense maybe just some questions about that, or, or you sense the tugging of God, let me implore you, don't leave this room without talking to somebody about that. That's why we have that, that whole quarter set aside, that whole next steps area. It's just for you and just for moments like this. And we want to continue this conversation with you. We want to share with you more fully, answer questions you might have about what it looks like to begin a relationship with God through Jesus Christ by repentance and belief. Let us come alongside you and celebrate that today. But for those that name the name of Jesus Christ, there's another response that this always calls forth. Paul put it this way, and he, Christ Jesus, died for all. That those who live, you and I, are still drawing breath today, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. That the calling upon our lives is, is not just to live for ourselves, not just to keep doing what we're doing. Give me a little Jesus on the side, please. But, but no, to radically reorient our lives so that the greatest treasure of our life is Jesus Christ. So that we live purposefully and passionately 
as a follower of Jesus Christ. Whatever roles we have, whatever occupations and vocations we pursue, whatever hobbies and avocations, whatever our family relationships are, whatever our health is, whatever our financial standing is, all of those are important, but they are not most important. What's most important is who do I live for? Am I going to live for the one who for my sake died? And was raised again. And am I going to live this day in light of eternity? In light of what he has done for me? And so this morning, we're going to approach the Lord's table. And to do that, I'm just going to give you two questions that I'll just encourage you to sit on. And allow just the Holy Spirit to kind of use in your life. The first, have I responded to God's perfect provision of Jesus Christ with genuine repentance and faith? I didn't ask you if you were a church member. I didn't ask you if you were religious. I ask you if you responded in genuine repentance, turning, and faith in the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ. Second question for reflection. Am I now living for him who for my sake died and was raised again. And you know, maybe one of the ways to think about that is just to think about the people in my life. Would the people that I live with, would the people that I work with, would the people that know me best, would they know that I am all in and I'm all out for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer, please. Oh, Father, as we come before you in these moments, we invite you to very personally speak to each of our hearts and lives, to speak to us about our standing and our relationship with you, And Lord, I pray today that if there's anyone in this room right here, right now, that does not know Jesus Christ personally, has not responded to the gracious gift of God through repentance and faith, that Father, they would not leave this room without doing business with you. Lord, let today be the day of salvation. And Father, I pray for many in this room who name the name of Christ Jesus. Lord, as we prepare to approach the bread and the cup, would you just show us any area of our life that is out of alignment with you? Any area where we've stepped back, stepped away or tried to sidestep your rightful rule and reign in our life? where we have substituted our understanding of best for what you know is absolutely our best. Lord, we just ask you in these moments of reflection to bring us back to the cross, to bring us back into alignment with your design for our life, your calling upon our life, 
your purpose for our life. Father, today, help us anew and afresh to direct ourselves to live for the one who gave his life for us. Father, we open ourselves up to the presence of your Spirit as we gather now around your table. We pray this together in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to the taking of the bread and the cup.